Hello, thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways, where the show that tackles tough topics and what could be tougher than talking about palliative care. I don't even really know exactly what palliative care is, but we have an expert with us who's going to explain it and explain to us why we as women are particularly interested, or at least should be, in what palliative care is. Welcome, Dr. Chai. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're welcome, and thank you for being with us. Um, first of all, uh, let's let's hear a little bit about you and, and what you do. I have your CV in front of me, and it's very impressive. And is it okay if I call you Emily, or do you want to be Dr. Chai? No, you can call me Emily. Okay. Emily, you're an MD, and mm-hmm. um, you work in what's called palliative care. So mm-hmm. what's your background? What brought you into that field? And what does palliative care really mean? Sure. So I actually started out, I'm both a geriatrician and a palliative care specialist. Um, You know, like we always say, every geriatrician has a story, uh, a grandmother's story. Yeah, mine is not any different than anybody else's. Um, You know, my grandmother started getting more frail and more debilitated, and that sort of got me interested in geriatrics and learning more how about how to care for her and what her care needs are. And during this sort of exploring process, I realized that palliative care and geriatrics go hand in hand. So palliative care is really like a specialized multidisciplinary medical care for patients with serious illness. And okay. a lot of our older adults have serious illness. Okay. And, yeah, and, you know, it happens to us as we get older. You know, I mean, I'm older now than I used to be, and I noticed this year some, some pesky little things started popping up, and I'm thinking, mm-hmm. okay, this is, the, this is the door opening here. So mm-hmm. you practice at Mount Sinai, am I correct? Yes. Okay. At the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai? Yes. And... Okay, and so you're interested in, in the geriatrics, what happens to us as we get older, and along with that comes the palliative care. Right. What exactly? I've heard palliative care. I kind of think I have an idea what it means, but mm-hmm. once, if somebody asks me what does it mean, I'm, I'm struggling to define it. Mm-hmm. Tell us what is palliative care and what does it have to do with geriatrics? Sure. So palliative care, like I said, is a specialized multidisciplinary care um, for patients who have very serious illness. It focuses on providing patients relief from symptoms uh, and stress from the serious illness, and it really treats both the patient and the family. Um, The reason why we need to work as a team is because it targets sort of four domains that are really important to the seriously ill. You know, patients who are seriously ill have physical symptoms like pain and shortness of breath. There's also emotional stressors and mental stress that need to be addressed. There are practical needs like how are they going to get into the office? You know, how are they going to get into their next appointment? When is that going to be? And there are also spiritual needs. So, Our team usually consists of a physician, a nurse, a social worker, and a chaplain, and we focus on the family unit, which is the patient and the family, and really addresses both the body, the mind, and the spirit. Okay. Um, Wow, you really are ready with that answer. That's a good answer. (laughs) Um, 
let's talk about the physical. You know, we, we mm-hmm. mentioned that some things, you know, as as we age, what are the typical physical uh, things that you see and that you deal with when a patient comes to you? I mean, so, we all think of the frailties of getting old, but um, mm-hmm. what are the specific physical needs that you deal with? Especially with aging, we deal with sort of arthritis pain. And along with arthritis pain, how that actually affects the ability to ambulate. Um, Which ability means walking, to, getting mm-hmm, yeah. Right, getting around. Even sometimes when arthritis is really bad, even doing simple things like grooming, you know, getting dressed in the morning, brushing your teeth can be incredibly hard. Um, you know, it's getting food, you know, with the arthritis. Now they may not be able to, to open up a bottle because, it hurts and they don't have the grip strength. So little things that we often take for granted um, that we do every morning, our morning routine gets altered as we get older and as we get, as arthritis sets in or as stability starts to take place. That's Hence the pill bottles or you can ask for the, the easy open bottle, right? Exactly, exactly. Or sometimes, you know, pharmacy nowadays are doing sort of the blister packs so they give you the medication all in like a big blister pack and you could just pop it and you take all your medicines in the morning and then one for later in the day and they organize that for you to prevent you from having to open up like multiple bottles. Wow, that's interesting. Although some of those blister packs are harder to open than I think than a bottle. But that's True, it depends me. on how big it is, right? <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I thought I had to open up for the dogs. The blister packs for the dogs were really tough. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so, okay, so we have the arthritis that we typically think mm-hmm. of as as a disease of aging. What are some of the mm-hmm. other issues? It's also dementia, you know, as women and as mm-hmm. we as humans start living longer. Um if you don't die secondary to cancer, to um, heart disease, or other trauma, a lot of uh, older adults would, are now living with memory loss. Yeah. And that itself and what, poses what's another problem. What's the difference between dementia and our, um, Alzheimer's? What, what's the difference? So Alzheimer's is actually a type of dementia. So uh, dementia is sort of the global terminology. Alzheimer's is one type of dementia. And the other type you may have heard of are like vascular dementia. So it takes place in patients with a lot of coronary disease. So the memory loss stems from the fact that the blood vessels are clogging. Okay. So that's a physical reason for that. I mean, it's something other than aging, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is that one correctable? That one is is preventable um, if you actually eat a healthy diet. You know, all the things that you would do to prevent you yourself from having a stroke or a heart attack can diminish your chances of getting dementia related to a vascular etiology. Okay. Okay. So we've got arthritis and dementia, two things that we often associate with our older older folks. Uh, mm-hmm. Are there other ones that are common? What about heart? You don't hear so much about heart problems anymore. You do. You do. Usually by the time they're in my patient population where the average age is about 86, you know, their heart problem more or less has gotten to more of a stable um 
uh, period. But what we do see sometimes a lot of is the irregular heart rate. So not so much the coronary disease, the heart attacks, right? Because they usually have, if they're going to happen, it happens a lot younger. But you start seeing that the wear and tear of, um, you know, your heart and your heart now become a little irregular. You see sort of organ failures, like your kidney is not working as well as it used to be, your liver sometimes, and maybe even your lungs. So we see sort of the the beginning in some of our patients what we call sort of early organ failure. Hmm. Okay. So in other words, the wearing out. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. What about all of the emotional stuff that goes along with this for the patient? Right. It's it's actually a huge emotional toll. You know, a lot of our patients are very independent. They may even be leaders in their fields. And with these debilities, it actually limits what they could do. So that sense of identity needs to be redefined. Um, and depending on the patient, that could be incredibly hard, right, um, to accept help because they've been independent all their life. Um, I have a patient who used to run a business, and he owns the business and has about a little over 100 employees. And now he's having difficulty not only getting to the office, he has cognitive decline with his memory, so he can no longer do that. And he's struggling trying to figure out what his role is. You know, who yeah. is he now that he can't do all the things that defined him in the past? Ooh, ooh, let's write that down. We need more than one thing to define us, don't we? Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to embroider that on a pillow. You know, <laughs> find at least four things to define us so that if one of them goes, we still have something. But I know what you mean. I, I mean, anybody mm-hmm. who's, you know, kids are growing up and, you know, the, fir- the first few times you hand them the car keys because they want to drive you is really right. tough. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it's mm-hmm. really tough. So I can only imagine when you're handing them, you know, other things in your life that you've taken care of. And and I I remember my father-in-law. I, if you went to a restaurant, he he would not let you treat you. He saw that right. or treat him. He saw mm-hmm. that as, you know, it was his role. He was the pocketbook, and mm-hmm. he was the one who paid. And he saw it as a real insult, a real real slam against him if you offered to pay the bill. Um, yeah. So I can. Those emotional things coming up. Are there any other emotional things that we can think of that, or that you see that you know is other than the? Um, I don't know. I mean, I often wonder. I, I in my family, uh, you know, I mean, I um, ex- experienced death early on, and and so I'm always, I've always had it in the back of my head that you know I'm I'm going to die, and it always someday, and it always is interesting to me how many people my age who, you know, they're, they're gobsmacked when you say, well, we're all going to die, you know. I mean, they don't really see that as a distinct possibility. And it only I can only imagine what happens when they do begin this decline and, and they have to face that. I would think that it would be a real shock. You know, actually, it's kind of very interesting. At least when patients are much older in their late 70s, 80s, they're they're actually coming to more terms with that because they've seen they've lost friends, you know, they lost close families. It's usually the family member 
so their daughters, their son, who sort of prevents them from talking about what their values are and what's important to them uh, in life. So they're willing to talk about it if I were to sort of bring up, you know, what makes um, life meaningful to you. You know, what's important to you? Is it your independence? Is it your walking? You know, is it just being able to recognize your family? Because that helps us plan. And it's usually the family, the daughters or the sons who says, you know, we shouldn't be talking about this. This is not happening anytime soon. And it's actually very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting, yeah. Well, okay, you, we've talked a little bit about the practical needs, and I think that I can kind of see about that. You know, I mean, uh, what if you can't drive anymore? How do you know? Uh, you know, and um, what if you can't walk up the stairs anymore? What do you do with that? So, I mean, the practical right. needs, I think, are are kind of obvious. Um, but spiritual needs, um, isn't that highly individual? That is very highly individual, you know, but when patients are faced with serious illness, the question of why me? There's somebody else who's 80 and they're doing fine. Why is it happening to me? Why am I the one who's having bad arthritis to this degree? My neighbor did I said that to a friend once. I, 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 we had a, a mutual friend that, uh, and we were talking. Everything was going really great for her and something bad was happening in, in my life. And I said, why me? Why is this happening mm-hmm. to me? And she goes, Mm-hmm. Oh, do you have a name you'd like to nominate for it to happen to other than you? You know? <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> so I guess it's kind of luck of the draw with some of this stuff, isn't it? It is, it is. And, you know, I think part of getting them through that illness is being able to sort of voice that and then define it what, what got them to start thinking about the why question. Um, a lot of times, you know, it's not the physical symptoms because that we could treat. And it's really the distress that comes with all these debilities that makes it very hard. Yeah. Wow. Tough field. Why did you choose to go to this? You said because of your grandma. But surely there's more than that, isn't there? Do you find it interesting? Do you find it challenging? What What keeps you in this field? I think what keeps me in the field and what drawn me to it is the fact that you see the patient and the family as a unit and you treat both. You know, it's not just enough to sort of treat the patient because we realize that the family plays a huge role either in caring for them or providing even sort of support, right, Uh, practical support or um, psychosocial support. And what I learned, what drew me to it was basically observing somebody actually having a really nice conversation that allows the physician and the team to get to know the patient, what's important to them, and then tailoring their treatment to really meet those goals. So for somebody, I'll give you an example I have um, a gentleman uh, who's a pharmacist, and he's adamant that cognition is very important to him because he's always been an intellectual. He reads a lot. Um, And that was sort of what he – that's how he defines himself. So he didn't mind. He had a stroke. He couldn't move his legs. He walks in a wheelchair. Didn't bother him at all. Right, And it was when he started losing his memory that things started really distressing him. 
another scenario where you could have exactly the opposite, right? Someone who's very physically active, moving around, and they feel that their life is now ending because they had a stroke that uh, that doesn't allow them to do the walks or the running that they used to do. And they may not be so bothered by the fact that they're not as sharp as they were because that wasn't sort of how they defined themselves. And so what palliative care does is the team actually sort of tries to clarify what the values, what's important to an individual and the family, and then really tailoring sort of the treatment based on that. Okay. This is tough. I assume you have a whole team working with you? you yes. You mentioned that you work with uh, others in the field, but just you you deal primarily with, with the physical at, at the hospital, mm-hmm. and then you have the team that deals with the other things. But yes. when you deal with just the physical, it seems to me you must have a whole team um, uh, to deal with those issues. Um, when we talked before the show, we mm-hmm. talked, and I thank you for this background information because it really helps flesh out what it is for me, but when we talked, we kind of discovered that, gee whiz, who's primary on these teams? You've got your 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 physical help, you've got your physicians and your healthcare mm-hmm. people, you've got your mm-hmm. uh, spiritual needs uh, person, your your counselor or your mm-hmm. psychologist or your your um, faith practitioner. Um, you've got people, uh, occupational therapists and physical mm-hmm. therapists who can help with the practical needs. Who's there to deal with the emotional? And when you and I were talking, we identified two areas that we don't seem to talk about a lot when we talk about Mm -hmm. palliative care or aging or serious illness. And Mm -hmm. one of them is the caretaker. Right. Who are we talking about when we talk about the caretaker? Because we Mm -hmm. both kind of came up with the idea at the same moment. We're talking about Mm -hmm. women caring for people. Right, right. And you mentioned a figure. I, I wrote down like uh, 90%, but I'm not sure that that's what – I make notes all over my paper, so I'm not sure the 90% applies to 90% are female caretakers, but it was very high. Yeah, it was about 70% of all caretakers are female. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. And so I guess we could kind of say that, you know, this is a, a woman's issue. It's yes. a women's issue. And whenever um, people work in the caring fields, um, social work, education, et cetera, there's a lot of talk about, you know, caring for the caretaker and mm-hmm. secondary trauma and all those kinds of mm-hmm. things. Right. Let's talk about the caretakers that you see. First of all, mm-hmm. what do they do, um, mm-hmm. actually? Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got all these highly trained professionals around your, your mom or your grandma uh, or mm-hmm. grandfather. Um, mm-hmm. and they know what they're doing, and they charge mm-hmm. ahead. But if you're doing the caregiving, mm-hmm. what do you do? Where's your job description? So the the caregiver actually does a lot of sort of the day-to-day activities, right? They're the ones who's providing the medication, reminding them to take their medication, feeding them, making sure they have food, going shopping, making sure laundry is done, making sure that, well, the social worker can set them up with a transportation agency. They have to be the ones who's calling them to say that mom or dad has an appointment at this time. Can you make sure that you come and pick up your mom or your dad? Um, They're really the ones who's there 24-7. 
and we can't even begin to talk about caring for a patient without the caretaker. You know, they coordinate medical visits, they manage financial affairs, you know, they're looking for support, they're the one who's just doing research on the type of care that could be provided. Um, and remember well, we and talked practical, a little... Mm-hmm. The practical stuff, you know, like you mentioned, getting, getting you know, mom or dad to the appointment, but it's also like, uh, you know, uh, okay, you know, mom hasn't had her hair washed in two weeks, I've got to get that taken care of. And, um, you know, get it, the Medicare bills just came in and, and the, mm-hmm. the statements for the physicians, and look, why, do, why are they not going to pay for this? And, you know, exactly. so, I mean, it covers everything from the hands-on, Mm-hmm. to the the money management to the transportation management and it's a tough job it's a tough job because this isn't just a job you can clock out of um right and this right. is a, a, a somebody that you care about right um, and there's a whole yeah. bunch of decisions that need to be made right whether those are financial whether they're medical they need to really take on that responsibility of making these decisions so that it can benefit the the patient and allow the patient to either stay where they are or maintain their current state, especially with older adults. Yeah, that's that's a tough thing. That's a very tough thing. Um, so, what do we see, and what do you see with caregivers? I mean, do they ever just say, "I can't do this anymore"? And if so, then what are the options? Well, hopefully we don't get there um, if we address it a little earlier. But we have seen caregivers who have dropped off their loved ones in emergency rooms because they don't know what else to do. They they are just completely overwhelmed. Um, and, you know, a lot of these caregivers are overwhelmed because it's a 24-hour job. They've given up their usual job. A lot of people, there's actually a recent study saying that as a caregiver, you're taking on one and a half jobs. Usually, you're still keeping your regular job, maybe not full time, but to some degree, and then you take on a second full time job. So, yeah. it is a huge, very stressful um, position to be in. And we've definitely seen, you know, the very rare circumstance where a caregiver is just so overwhelmed that. They can no longer care for their loved ones, and what they really need is respite care. Okay, and so what's that? What's respite care? I've heard of that with with disabled children, but I've not heard of that Mm -hmm. when it comes to adults, older people. Yeah, and respite care, unfortunately, for most of... um, for most adults, it's not really careful, but it's really thinking about how do you take a break from caregiving and focus on yourself. So a lot of times when we're doing counseling um, for caregivers who are pretty very hands-on and very involved, we sort of have them think about, you know, in the course of the week, where do you get time to leave your role of caregiving. And this is not to go to work. This is really time for themselves so that they could continue the role of caregiving for a longer period of time. And that may be reaching out to other family members to help. It may be reaching out to friends, but really setting this up ahead of time so you don't get to the point where you're so burned out and you don't know what to do that you have to leave your loved one in the emergency room because it's been just too difficult for you. 
and it's a concept that's very hard for for um, a lot of women, right? Because they feel like it's their role to be taking care of them. What right do they have to get the nails done once a week? And yeah, that's where. And that's where the problem comes up is that they've sort of burned everything they have. So respite is basically sort of really thinking for a sort of space for them, you know, for them to take care of themselves so that we don't end up burning them out. Yeah. Um, but that's not cheap. I mean, we have, and this isn't no. really your, your, your area, but, I mean, we have to talk about money with this. This stuff is expensive. It's mm-hmm. expensive. Um, yep. And, you know, there's Medicare, but I think, you know, a lot of people see, who haven't inv- been involved at this level think Medicare covers a heck of a lot more than it does. Um, you know, you're, I, unless it's changed since my mom passed away a few years ago, Medicare doesn't cover the hearing aids. It doesn't do anything with the dental. It doesn't do anything, you know, to wash their hair, you know, once a nope. month. It doesn't have, right. you know, um, it, it, it just doesn't do any of that stuff. And right. short of a nursing home, there's limited resources. So the caregiver, you know, and, and for most of us, we can't just quit a job. You know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and for those of us who were single mothers dealing with, you know, an elderly parent, um, it's just like, wow. I mean, sometimes I look back at that time in my life when my mom was, you know, and and my kids were little and, you know, uh, and I think, how did I do that? I don't really yeah, recall you, how I did that. Right. Um, you're strapped between the younger and the older generation. Yeah. It's tough. Mm-hmm. It's tough. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so we've got these caregivers, but they have their emotional needs and they have their practical needs and they have their spiritual needs and they don't have a doctor that they can just go to um, mm-hmm. for the physical treatment. Um, what do you see in your practice with the caregivers? Are you able, and again, I'm not asking you to do this because, I, I, I mean, you've got your hands full with the other stuff, but are you able to provide any of these, you know, to meet any of these needs of the caregivers? And if not, who can? So we actually do do a lot of education with caregivers, right, because we know that this is not a one-day job. It's um, a really a long-term position, whether they like it or not, they're actually in it. And so we do a lot of counseling. So for emotional piece, um, you know, our social workers and our chaplain can actually help coach them um, to sort of do sort of relaxation or to provide some counseling, to give them some resources, especially to think creatively about what we just talked about, about respite, and plan that ahead instead of waiting for a crisis to occur, Um, to encourage them to participate in some of the activities that outside of caring that they actually should be participating so that they don't end up socially isolated, right? Um, getting them social support from others who may be in the same situation. And all of that by sort of providing these assistance and counseling, um, there's been data that it actually is helpful in decreasing sort of the depression and anxiety that is very, very prevalent among caregivers who provide care for a long period of time. So that's sort of from the emotional standpoint. And from the physical standpoint, it's, again, it's really Show, letting them know they need to take care of themselves because if they don't take care of themselves, there's going to be long-term consequences both for them and for their loved ones because then they're not going to be available to take care of their loved ones. 
And we know there are definitely data out there showing that women who are caregivers um, don't fill their prescription because it costs too much. Um, yeah. don't get their routine mammogram or other preventive health services. And this group actually has the people who actually work longer hours as a caregiver has a higher risk of heart disease. So it's yeah. really about sharing and making sure that they take care of themselves and they make time for themselves. Yeah. Well, and, and again, having done this, uh, and we didn't really talk about this beforehand, but, you know, I've I've done this. And mm-hmm. having done this, you feel so guilty. Everything you do, mm-hmm. you feel guilty. And when mm-hmm. with me, my mother was calling me. You know, I, I placed her in assisted living, and then um, she couldn't stay there any longer, and she had to actually go to a nursing home. And you know, she was calling me. I was never doing enough for her. I was. I had two, you know, uh, teenage kids. I mean, it, wow. You know, I mean, the guilt that comes with this, and uh, and I don't recall that there was any information anywhere about anything that would help me. Um, so it sounds like at your institution and you're at your hospital, um, they're focusing on, on helping that caregiver. Um, and, and I applaud that. I really do. But I know that no matter what you do, you feel guilty like you should have been doing more. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost like raising kids where you, you right. think in some ways it's worse than raising kids. Because when you're raising kids and you make a decision and you think, no, Johnny can't go out or, you know, can't go out on that date, you know, because he did da-da-da, and you're firm in your brain that, no, this is not good. I need to draw the line here. He can't do this. With your parent, you're going, how do I just draw the line and parent my parent? It's it's a less comfortable fit. And it's a so reversal. Yeah, and and we're yeah. questioning and and mm-hmm. wondering whether we're doing it correctly. I always say right. nobody gives. Who do we have as a role model for caring for elderly parents? I mean, name a TV show where there. I mean, you might have the show with the feisty grandma, but right. she's not at the level of of you know having to be cared for this way. Um, who's our role model? Our role, we don't really have role models. We just watch how our parents did it, and, mm-hmm. you know, oftentimes our parents' parents didn't live that long. You know, our parents right. are living a lot longer. Um, right. So it's a tough field, it, it, I think. I think it's really tough. And when you're a woman, you've got all that woman baggage that comes with you. I, I laughingly mm-hmm. call it the woman baggage, you know, <laughs> where we do tend to take on guilt. We do tend to, t- you know, take on the responsibilities. We tend to, you know... Uh, somebody loses their lunchbox, and the first thing we do is help them look instead of saying, yeah. go look for it, you know. Right, um, right. <laughs> you know, we join in the search, even though we were uh-huh. in the middle of something else. And, um, right. So um, with the caregivers, are there any other resources? You mentioned that your facility is doing trying to provide support for them, but is there any other source that you can think of? Yeah, there's actually now a lot more focus uh, given to caregivers. So it's like on AARP, they actually have a caregiving uh, section on the website now, which gives you, goes through some of the things we talked about today. And then if for patients with dementia in Alzheimer's organization, alzheimers.org, they also actually have a section on caregiving. And a lot of... 
the Alzheimer's website, a lot of what they have on caregiving focuses on information, right? Because giving caregivers information about what to expect can actually decrease their stress. Letting them know that this is actually okay and this is normal can actually help them cope with what they're seeing, like the role reversal that we were talking about that we've never had a model to model after, you know, but sometimes when there are behaviors and you have to set limits uh, with your parent, it's incredibly hard, very different than setting limits with your children because you anticipated that. Um, yes. But, you know, letting the the website and other professionals letting you know that it's actually okay and that's the right thing to do can at least alleviate some of that stress and that guilt that am I doing this right? Am I not? Is this the right thing to do? Um, so those are probably two resources that I would probably suggest and recommend. Okay, and we're going to mention those again at the end before we close the show um, because that's that's useful. So one of the other things that you and I talked about because this is, you know, I mean, everything is about trauma now, and, and after having had Dr. Vincent Felitti, the author of the ACEs studies on the show uh, a couple of months ago, um, I really uh, have embraced this whole idea of trauma and the impact of trauma in a person's life. Um, mm-hmm. I think I tended personally to just kind of go, yeah, well, life happens and you have to adjust, and yes, that's a tough thing, but, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just keep going. You know, I, I tended to have that ab- attitude, um, and I didn't necessarily uh, come about that attitude as cavier- ca- cavalierly as I sound. I mean, I've had my share of traumas in my life. Um, mm-hmm. But after doing a little research and seeing, you know, trauma is huge. And. Mm-hmm. It sticks with us most of our lives. Um, what are you seeing both from the patient standpoint and the caregiver standpoint? How, how does trauma fit into this? Does trauma make things worse? Does it, is it, does it something that has to be resolved? What, what part does trauma play in this part of our lives? You know, any sort of acute event, any trauma that's imposed on the patient impacts the caregiver very greatly because it's a huge sudden change. And from the caregiver's perspective, any acute change or any acute trauma actually increases the risk of um, complicated bereavement if that trauma leads to a death um, or it you know, complicated PTSD for some of these uh, caregivers, especially if they weren't expecting it. It's very different, like, in someone who has dementia and you as a caregiver is expecting a slow gradual decline. We have a chance to actually readjust despite the fact that the loss is hard. You know, you're anticipating that that will come at some point. Trauma sort of changes that. It doesn't allow any of us to sort of what we call do some anticipatory grieving. You know, there's none of that. And as a result, it causes a lot more sort of anxiety, complicated bereavement, and in severe cases, even PTSD. Wow. And so that adds to the overall picture, what has to be dealt mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. Um a lot of complications. What about for the caregiver? Um, if they have experienced trauma in their lives, and uh, do, you know, do you ever see 
what they're dealing with with their their um, uh, elderly person? Does that ever trigger things for them that you see that you have to deal with? Yeah, it it definitely does. If they've actually experienced trauma, it actually affects their decision making, and it can go, you know, in any direction based on what that trauma is. Uh, we've had families or caregivers that come in having experienced a very traumatic procedure, making decisions on their loved ones, saying we're not undergoing any complicated procedures. You know, we've also had um, people who flip the other way where that traumatic procedure had mounted so much guilt that they said they want to go undergo, they want their loved ones to undergo any aggressive procedure, whatever cost. Um, So trauma impacts sort of the the person's ability to make decisions, um, and that has really significant outcome on the patient. Wow, and it's, you know, I mean, we all have the the paperwork. We all know what's required, the powers of attorney and things like that, but Mm -hmm. sometimes people don't have those. And so Mm -hmm. what happens for decision-making if the elderly patient can't make the decision Mm -hmm. and the the qualified decision-maker doesn't have the legal authority to do it? You know, it's, that gets very, very complicated. If we really think that the legal decision maker does not have the capacity to make decisions, then it actually act, goes on to either the next uh, suitable decision maker, if there is one, and if not, it actually goes into the courts. Usually a very protracted, long process to get a guardian assigned. Um, it does that take expensive. a very expensive and delays uh, in treatment, and patient may receive care that they may never have wanted. Hmm. What about when the patient doesn't have any caregiver? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So those. Happens? So if the patient has no family, no caregiver, those are the patients that end up spending down to the Medicaid level and going to nursing homes because there's no other option. Someone has to take care of them when they can't be cared for at home, and so they're in the long-term care facilities. We could probably consider ourselves lucky if we get a caregiver and we get to stay at home, and honestly, we joke about this in the healthcare setting, but we always say that if you don't have a daughter, there's a really, really good chance you're going to be intubated, pegged, and in a nursing home. Because it's the daughters that take care of you at home and try to keep you at home. Yeah, that's true. That's Mm -hmm. true. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Um, So, okay, all of you childless people who are still in childbearing areas, think about No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) 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 We were joking, you have two sons, but I'm in trouble. You know, my husband and I were like, "Hmm, maybe we should think about adopting a daughter. Well, I'll tell you, my sister had um, uh, two girls and a boy, and mm-hmm. I have uh, a daughter and a son, and both in her case and in my case, our sons are extremely caregiving. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know whether that's just a quirk of fate or whether it has something to do with, you know, how they're raised. I, you know, I mean, I, ha- having raised two children, I, I do know that we really can't take credit for a lot of stuff. Some of it just happens. <laughs> <laughs> we, we You're try. very fortunate. 
<laughs> we we like to pat ourselves on the back and say, yes, yes, uh-huh. yeah, I'm the reason this person is a good, you know contributing to society. But quite honestly, a lot of it just happens despite whatever we do. Um, <laughs> and uh, but I I think you know, and, and we are talking about women as the primary caregiver because that seems to be the way it happens. Mm-hmm. But right. there are, as you mentioned, you know, uh, uh, a lot of those sons are also extremely caregiving, mm-hmm. um, right. and so. You know, it's luck of the draw, but primarily it becomes a woman's issue, and mm-hmm. um, and then that's something that that we as women have to deal with as well. Um, right. You know that whole issue of uh, you know how much can we do, and mm-hmm. you know I mean I I struggled with my mother because we had you know they they came with a the DNR you know for her to mm-hmm. sign, mm-hmm. Um, and she wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't do it. And she wanted to know what it was all about, and so I told mm-hmm. her, and I said, "So you have to decide, mom, you know mm-hmm. what you what you want to do and she would not sign it mm-hmm. so I mm-hmm. had legal power of attorney and medical mm-hmm. power of attorney, so mm-hmm. I could have signed it, but I struggled and i and for if it was me, I'd sign it, you know mm-hmm. I mean, I've already taken care of that stuff and and it's a done deal. My kids aren't going to have to decide that for me, mm-hmm. but when you're responsible for doing it for your mother, it doesn't matter what you would do for yourself. You have to try and put yourself in your mom's shoes and say, okay, she didn't sign this. There must have been a reason that she didn't sign it. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I am deciding to stop her treatment, am I deciding that because I am just exhausted with having to do all this stuff? I mean, is that a factor in my decision-making here? Because if that's the case then bad on me. Um, mm-hmm. Or am I making this decision because all the doctors are saying, well, it would be cruel to run her through another test. It would be this, you know, because you do get input from your medical team. And mm-hmm. in my case, the medical team was really talking about my mother's quality of life. And, well, you know, uh, she had she had mental illness at the same time that she had dementia mm-hmm. and cancer. And they were really heavily pressuring me to not do more for her. Mm-hmm. And from my standpoint, I said, yes, I wouldn't want it done for me. But she didn't sign the DNR. She did not agree to this. So mm-hmm. maybe her quality of life is not what you would think ideal. Maybe it's right. not what I think mm-hmm. is ideal. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. maybe she's happy with it. And there I am mm-hmm. having to decide with the doctor saying, you know, don't do this and Basically, society saying don't do this, and yet knowing that my mom didn't say don't do this, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. tough. That you is can tell very I still tough. About that, can't you? Yes, <laughs> yes, I could, and I wish like. <laughs> You know, you had somebody in palliative care to sort of walk you through that. Because what we, we, what we tend to do in situations like that is really look at the person as a whole and see what is very important to them, right? So if she, if your mom had been incredibly independent and being able to retain that is important to her, and you know that she would never, ever want to be in an institution not being able to be sort of speaking for herself or eating without a feeding tube, that could help make some of those medical decisions because a lot of these medical decisions go down a pathway, um, and it can potentially take some of that burden off of you where your role as the caregiver and as the daughter is to give us information about what's important to her. 
Um, one of the things that we've always talked about is that sometimes patients don't really quite understand what, like, what a DNR really means, right? Um, and I can tell you I could get two different answers depending on how I ask that question. If I ask the question, do you want to be resuscitated, guess what? Everybody will say yes. Very few will say <laughs> no, okay? But then if I ask them the question, you know, if and when your heart stops, do you want to die naturally? I will guarantee you the majority will say yes as well. Wow. But then if you're getting a resuscitation, you're not dying naturally. So sometimes well, it, it comes back to, to framing. Yeah, and it has to do with, you know, where where are you in life? I mean, if you've mm-hmm. raised your children, if you've seen them get off in their lives, if you've done, mm-hmm. you know, the things that we normally associate with a full life, then it mm-hmm. seems to me that you'd be more likely to say, or maybe it would be, uh, no, I'm not ready to give up yet because I'm having a good time. When my, yeah. my sister was, was dying, yeah, when my sister was dying of cancer, the the um, hospice had a, a, a framed thing at the front door that said, and I'm sure you've, you've heard it, the, the, the saying about when I come to the end of my life, I want to be, I, I don't want to look good, I want to be used up and worn out and slide into, you know, uh, uh, death saying, woohoo, what a ride. I, 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 I'm mangling that statement, but I've seen it in several places. Mm-hmm. Um, and she loved that. She loved that, mm-hmm. that saying. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. My mother would not have loved that saying. My mother would have gone, no. You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I right, and everybody's different. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. But, and, and, and as the caregiver, you know, wow, you have to sort all that stuff out. My head spins just remembering all that time. Um, it was tough. Wow. Okay, I'm getting triggered here with this conversation. <laughs> I'm going down memory lane. <laughs> but it's tough, and I think the important thing to remember is that pretty much all of us are going to be in this position um, yeah. at, at one one end of it or another and probably both mm-hmm. ends of it. Um, right. And if we're women, we're, we're going to get uh, more than our fair share of this to deal with. Um, right. No matter how... how uh, caring and how egalitarian our lives are, I think that mm-hmm. we are just going to get more of it, and that's right. that. Right. So what have you learned in doing this? How many years have you done this? Um, in geriatric and palliative care, I sort of started in 2003, so it's quite some time. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And what have you learned you know, I mean, some of very similar things that you've just sort of shared through your personal experience that, you know, a lot of this is so personal. You know, people do caregiving for different reasons. People make decisions for very different reasons. And what's really important, at least from my perspective, is really trying to figure out who that person is. It's sort of where medicine is heading about personalized medicine. You can't treat the same um, heart attack the same way because the patient may have different goals and different values. And I think, at least for me, I feel like that's a really, really important piece because really fitting sort of the treatment goals, uh, the treatment to what the patient's goals is probably more important than this sort of pathway and in what we have done in medicine for a very long time, realizing that there's more than just the medicine. There's caregivers who are really essential in the caring of the patient because 
they're the one who's seeing the patient and making sure that the patient's medications are being administered. I could order the medication. If they don't take it, they're not getting better. Right, right, exactly. So um, that's sort of what yeah. I, I've sort of taken away in the the decade that I've been in practice. Yeah. This is a, a tough field because you know how it's going to end. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, I mean, in other areas of medicine, we know that sometimes things end badly and sometimes they don't. Sometimes there's a great outcome. But when you're talking geriatric care, it's always going to end one way. And I think in our, this is another rant that I commonly make, in our culture, we seem to think that if we eat right, if we exercise right, if we have a positive attitude, everything's going to be wonderful. And if if it's not wonderful, it's because we must not have eaten right exercised right or had the positive attitude. I had a friend who worked in a hospice for several years and and ran into her and she had quit. And I said, well, yeah, I bet it's hard. And she said, I said, it must be hard seeing the patients Mm -hmm. die. You know, every patient Mm -hmm. is going to die. And she said that that wasn't the hardest part. The hardest Mm -hmm. part was to see them beat themselves up for dying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That somehow or other they must have done something wrong. Right. And yet, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, you're the doctor, but I think aren't we all going to die? Yeah, yep. But I think the difference is that how they approach that could be changed um, if they're able to sort of voice what that's going to look like or what that means to them. You could sort of – I have one patient who was pretty young and relatively – I think she was like 70, late 60s, was dying of cancer – And she probably did planned out her funeral, the dress she was wearing, and was able to face it in a way that I've seen very few people was able to do. So she left a letter for her children, her husband, about the celebration she wants after she dies. And she spent sort of whatever time she had really living her life. So she died the way she lived because the last few days were exactly how she lived, caring for her children, caring for her husband, planning out what's going to actually happen. So there was, like, no decision that was left to be made afterward because she decided what she wanted. And it was kind of very enlightening um, hearing that and seeing that happen as she sort of unfolds because she handed the letters to us to hold and said, when the time comes, please give it to my children and to my husband. She actually even wrote a letter of her daughter was in her, I want to say 16, 17. She wrote a letter that we were supposed to give to her husband to hold on her daughter's wedding day that she's not supposed to open. So she really lived her, like, her dying was how she lived. It was really amazing. Wow. I wouldn't be that organized. You know, (laughs) all the letters would be half written when I'd go. (laughs) I wouldn't have finished yet. It it sort of (laughs) defines who we are, right? That's who she is, and that's how she lived, and that's how... You know, I, I I had a friend, a dear friend who died a few years ago, and at uh-huh. her funeral, one of her other friends was, you know, how we we all seemed. That's a, this is another rant I have. We all seemed to feel obliged to stand up and tell everyone our our story about the person. Uh-huh. I, you know, I I tend to think no, that's private. You know, I I tend to not like that. You know, the parade uh-huh. of people going up 
and I, I see it more as, you know, see how great I am because I was so close to this person, but that's my issue. Um, but uh, all these people were going up and telling their stories about Pam, and one of the women said, oh, well, you know, she was wonderful, she was so organized, and when she found out that she was going to die, she immediately went through all the photographs and made albums for her children and cleaned out mm-hmm. all of her closets, and I thought, oh, my God. God, I don't want to do that. I want to go out and party. You know, I mean, tra- <laughs> let, you know, let them set a match to the closets. I don't care. Let's go have some fun, you know. But this other person thought it was so wonderful that, that Pam cleaned out everything. And I know with my sister, she did the same thing. She just kind of cleaned out everything. And so I just looked at my kids and I said, don't, don't, don't count on that. <laughs> <laughs> you know what we always say? We always say, like, you die how you lived. There's plenty of patients who don't make no, but don't make any plans because they don't like making plans and they won't have a plan in place. But there's also people who are in control, right? They need control over the circumstances, and that's how sort of you know that ending actually happens. And it's actually really nice because you get to see a little bit of who they are. Uh, At least we do because we don't necessarily know them for a long period of time, but. It's not any different from how they live their life, and that's sort of the nice thing. And as for for me, I think I find that very rewarding um, to be able to sort of see that glimpse of who they are. Um, you know, my my son end. came to me not too long ago, and he said, "Mom, I I have uh, he's an adult, and he goes, Mom, I'm really concerned about you.'" And I went, "Really? Why?" And he goes, "I think you have adult onset ADHD." And I went, really? <laughs> yes, you're just doing all this stuff. You just, you know, go, go, go. And, and, you know, you go from one thing to another. He said, I'm really concerned about you. And I said, well, I, I do appreciate your concern. But I said, remember when you were a little kid and we went to Disneyland? Yeah. And I said, we had a great time. We did a lot of rides, had a great time, hugged Mickey, you know, had breakfast with Minnie and all that kind of stuff. But I said, remember, we were there all day. And all of a sudden they announced that the park was going to close in an hour. And we hadn't done Magic Mountain. So we all <laughs> ran to Magic Mountain so that we could get in on that before the park closed. And then we uh-huh. ran to the teacup so we could say we went on the teacup. And so we were running because we knew we only had an hour left. Uh-huh. And I said, my personal Disneyland is going to close in about an hour, and I want to make sure I get on Magic Mountain and the teacups. <laughs> That's you know, it's not ADHD. No. You know? Oh. I just want to make sure I get on Magic Mountain before my time is up, you know? Right. Hey. <laughs> hey. So, so my kids as caregivers are going to have their hands full, I guess. I don't know. Well, it seems anyway, like you've done I, a lot of thinking and planning, so you may actually be making it a lot easier for them. Well, I ha- you know, I, like I said, when you lose everybody in your family early, you do know this is going to happen. This isn't some, mm-hmm. you know, um, concept down the road you know this is going to happen so i've done everything i mean i i've I've had neptune to society for years anywhere i if i'm anywhere in the world and i drop dead neptune society will take care of it and you know uh, the only thing i haven't done is uh to do some sort of plot if they want to you know uh, plant me in you know in in a in a plot i i haven't done that because you know i I just haven't but um otherwise everything's taken care of and paid for you know, they don't have to do a darn thing. And I also, at the same time, I show them the paperwork and say, okay, this is this, this is this, this is this. Um, you know, and you have a, you're a signature on the safety deposit box and the will is there and blah, blah, blah. And they kind of laugh at me because they go, ma, you know, I'm going, but really, it's all done. It's all done. Mm-hmm, you know, because mm-hmm, no matter how old we are, we never know. We could be hit by a bus tomorrow, right? 
Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I always say, all of this being done, if you want to change it, change it. I'm not going to care. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it, it's not going to make any difference to me. I'm just doing mm-hmm. it so that you don't have to struggle thinking what would she have wanted. Um, it's actually interesting. I'm actually seeing, yeah, I'm actually seeing more caregivers who have care for either, you know, elderly parents. They're doing exactly what you're doing. Yeah. Doing you a lot more of that planning. Thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah. exactly. Wow. Who would have thought we could laugh during a discussion about palliative care? <laughs> but, but that's another thing you learn, isn't it? You you laugh at what you can laugh at. And um, and we're all going to face this in one way or shape or form. We're all going to face this. And so it's good to have this kind of information, I think. And as women especially, we need to know about this as well because uh, chances are we're the ones that are going to be looked at um, to do some of this stuff and make some of these decisions. And um, so, wow, uh, important what you're doing. We talk yeah, about and I would even yeah, I was going to say just sort of say I think women are more likely to have pal care needs, and uh, not only as a caregiver, but since we're living a lot longer than men, we may need it because we're the recipient of caregiving as well. Wow, we're getting it at all angles. But mm-hmm. I don't know. Yep. My, you know, my father always used to say, "Women don't." Or my mother used to say, "Women don't live longer; it just seems longer." That's all. <laughs> <laughs> Perspective. You talked about Alzheimer's dot org and ARP, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. AARP as resources. Yeah. Are there any other resources that you can mention for folks? Yeah, and then if there are people who want to know a little bit more about palliative care, they can look at getpalliativecare.org. dot org. And that has information about what palliative care is. It also has information specific to where you live. If you feel that palliative care may be helpful to you, there are resources by state. So you could look for, you know, access to palliative care in your state or your local area. Wow. Lots of resources out there, and um, it's it's really good to know about them. I thank you very much, Dr. Chai, for being on our show and talking about palliative care, end-of-life care, and how it affects women. So thank you for joining us. Really appreciated it. And thank you for listening to Three Women, Three Ways. Join us next week when we have a whole new topic. Thank you. Thank you.